0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to Out of Office. In the early 1970s, a young girl was born into a humble family in China's Fujian province. She was eager to learn, but school fees were steep. Her family couldn't afford to send two children to school. What what I end
2: up doing is I, I was I stood behind my sister and she she came home with her homework and, and book and, and I would learn standing
1: behind her. A few years later, her family emigrated to Hong Kong. There she got a chance to study while working in factories and waiting tables to provide for her family.
2: Going to school was just a game-changing event in my life and and no matter how hard it is, I think, uh, in China, I hope in India and in Africa, around the world, we've we got to provide the educational uh, opportunity for girls. Uh, there's no other better way. That just has to be the best way. Not every girl will come, come through, but some of us have and some of us
1: will. That's Joey Watt the CEO of Yum China, the largest fast food chain operator in the country. It has a workforce of 450,000 people who work across brands that include Pizza Hut and KFC.
2: No matter who I am right now, who I will be in the future, I always have that little girl work in a restaurant in me, always.
1: It's been a tough couple of months for the restaurant industry because of the pandemic, but Yum China kept some of its stores open throughout the crisis because
2: It's just the right thing to do.
1: In this episode, Joey explains why doing the right thing, even when it's not the easiest thing, drives her. Listen in. Joey, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you, Malika. Malika, Thank you. So, Joey, when I met you last, it was end of January and we were in Davos. Correct. I don't think you or I had any idea how much the world was about to change. Indeed. Indeed. Shocking. Shocking, right? So you went back from Davos to China. Correct. And were you completely surprised by how much things had changed or how quickly things changed? Yes and no. Um, when I was in Davos, I, I
2: remember the date quite, quite clearly. January 20th is the day when internally we set up the crisis management team. And by January 23rd, uh, that was Wuhan lockdown. We were in Davos at that time. Uh, and then very shortly after, I jumped on the train, fly directly from Zurich back to China. By January 20th, we, we kind of have a sense that this is serious, and by, by the time Wuhan Wuhan lockdown, we know this is unprecedented. Uh, we, we closed many stores in Wuhan very quickly. We have never really closed our stores, including Chinese New Year.
1: Really? So this was a big step?
2: This is a big step. Even compared to SARS 17 years ago, we trade through the entire SARS time. 17 years ago, and for us, at the height of the CB19, we closed more than 30% of our store, and this is absolutely the first time in our last 30-some years record. So we we knew it was uh, very,
1: very serious. Uh, You've been through a challenging couple of months, as have a lot of your peers in the restaurant industry, but Yum China seems to have done okay. We're still a bit more than 10% down for April, but, but um,
2: you know, we are grateful for the trust from our customer, from our employee, from everyone uh, to allow us to recover, to support our business recovery to almost 90%. and That was very, uh, very encouraging.
1: Business to recover almost 90%. That is absolutely incredible. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank what you. What do you attribute that to? We
2: have a few months' time to reflect upon it, and, and now uh, we are able to, to put it in a relatively uh, simple way to describe uh, our thinking. At the beginning of the CV19, let's say January 20, uh, we, we have few things Uh, they they, they were very, very clear to the management's uh, head and to our decision-making process. Because when we were faced with such unprecedented challenges, we could not really rely on historical or past experience to make decisions. But we can always rely on our values, our culture, and our best judgment of the situation. We know that we're going to make mistakes. We know that we're going to be far from perfect, but we need to have the courage to make the, make the decision. And the analogy that I use with my team is, um, it's just like we being parents for the first time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, parents somehow never have to go to university or take a test to, to, to become a parent. Correct. And, and, and so yet, sometimes
1: you wish there was a, a school <laughs> yes. for your <new> parents.
2: <laughs> and, and somehow parents still have to make such critical decisions for their kids. So it's a bit like that. It's a bit like that. And we need to have the courage to make the right decision. So assuming young China is a family, we, we are a big family, over 400,000 plus employees, is a very big family.
1: That was exactly my question, Joey. But yeah. when you're talking about being new parents and having kids, you're talking about 460,000 employees. Yes. yes, That's one of the largest workforces in the world for a company.
2: Some family members are sick, were very sick. That's Wuhan. And then later on, who else got sick? Henan. And we are closing the stores as situation evolves. So for some family members were, were sick and they need to rest and they need to recover. However, there are other family members who were not sick. That is the eastern part of China. Mm -hmm. And we make decisions based on our best data. Um, So so when some family members are sick, the rest family members actually need to keep working. So that one day when when Wuhan and Henan recover, we still have food on the table for the family. Not to mention, while we look after the employee, we have to look after the customers, and of and course. the community. Because we always forget, and we almost hesitate sometimes to to admit to recognize that lockdown is a middle class privilege.
1: I agree with you. A lockdown is definitely a middle class privilege. You do have large sections of society, especially in developing countries, who simply cannot afford to stay at home and even can't afford social distancing.
2: What inspired us at that time was we closed all the stores in Wuhan, Wuhan and then we realized some hospitals in Wuhan, the medical staff, the doctor and nurses, they were not getting food.
1: And that's when you stepped in, right? So tell us about that.
2: I mean, we donate some money, a few million, but it's a small amount. But we have our own supply chain in Wuhan. We have our warehouse in Wuhan. Um, we have food in our store. So with the with the support, strong support of my local staff, we decide to open up quite a few restaurants just to just to prepare food for the hospitals. It's not for doing business. So we deliver free meals to many hospitals in Wuhan uh, for as long as we allow, as long as we could. And that Inspiration continues. So up to now, we have delivered free meals to more than 1,450 hospitals and community centers in more than 28 provinces in China. So that's only one part of it, but the fact that we keep our stores open also serve our community because we, we cannot forget about the police, the traffic control people, the frontline community people, they have to work to keep the lockdown going and we are the place that they can still come in to have good food with good um, health, uh, good, good, hygiene and good price because we would we never raise a penny of price, uh, particularly in this situation. So we call ourselves the supporter of the essential workers. So they are always essential workers in our society around the world to keep our society going and we are the supporter. We support them. So not only the staff, but the customer, but the community, we are responsible for. And our staff, they are wonderful. They really share the the thought. And even though they know that sometimes and many times it, it, it we will lose more money to keep the stores open than closing the store. We do. We do lose more money. It's just the right thing to do, and as you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of staff who need the job as well so you know jobs are very very important normal time jobs are even more important during such difficult time and and i was i was a waitress at one point myself uh, when i was 15 in hong kong and you know uh, there's a need for money there's a need for money there's no other way to describe it
1: and what about you personally I believe your family was away and you were in China managing the crisis. How long was the family separated? And I know you're very, you very—you come from a very close-knit family, so that must have been hard for you. It's challenging. Uh, we've been away from each other for four months now. Are they still away?
2: Yes, but we are seeing the end of the tunnel now.
1: You're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, yes. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. So, so we are doing fine.
1: Your employees, you have about 450,000 of them. How do you stay in touch with them, stay in touch with what they need or their aspirations? Or, you know, it's such a vast workforce. So, what's your method of staying close to them? Well,
2: first of all, during those difficult times, we we did something very simple. Uh, We call each other. I call my direct reports. My direct report called their direct report and it go all the way down to the store level. And during the difficult time, each of my store manager, he or she will call the store staff. We want to make sure that they're okay. We want to make sure that their families are okay. I mean, it's not done yet. It's not, it's not, you know, we are not completely out of this crisis yet, but as of today, we have 10 staff got infected. Um, out of four hundred fifty thousand, the number is very, very. The percentage is very, very small. Tiny, yeah. And all of them have recovered already. They are, they're all healthy now. And That's seven, great. seven of these infected cases were in Wuhan. So, so outside Wuhan, our staff have really, um, uh, we we have done our best to protect protect ourselves. And so, so it's not only talking to them or giving whatever guidance, is about making sure everybody is okay. And when you have that very simple mission, we want to make sure everybody's okay, then you will do what is right. Um, So so that is just very quick and fast, effective network, as you can see, how does it work. But in in this crisis, when we are going through such difficult time, there's no such thing called over communication.
1: You've talked very often about doing the right thing, even if it's not always the easiest thing. Yes. Where does this value come from?
2: Oh, boy. Um, well, you asked a really uh, soul-searching question. Where does it come from? I, I, I'm, I'm from a small village in China originally.
1: You were born in Fujian province, right?
2: Yes. And, and you know, in a small village, um, there are many, there were many biases and prejudices, or whatever, right? Um, especially as you can imagine, back to the old time, being a little girl in the village is not is not necessarily the, the most prestige thing. Um, but but you know, I have a I have a very amazing great grandmother, and and she actually was the head of the household. Uh, really, she, she ran the family. Not 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 any other man in my family. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you come from a family of strong women.
2: <laughs> oh, she she certainly was strong. And uh, when when I was born, she was already uh, blind. And she she had those bum feet, you know. That tell you how. Uh, oh really? Yeah. She she has bum feet, and she she was blind. Uh, but she. She ran the
1: business. <laughs>
2: she ran the family.
1: That's um, amazing. She had bound feet. She was blind, but and she know. was
2: illiterate too. <laughs> uh, physical physical size, she was tiny, but but she's, she's always so calm, so positive, um, um, and and always always talk about um, doing the right thing and it it's just kind of normal uh normal thing for for me to think that way
1: are there any examples of choices she made where she did the right thing that you that you remember that stand out in some of your memories
2: oh many 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 some might be too hard for for audience to chew um but <laughs> yes yes um she's always uh, you know Despite the fact that, you know, you can imagine girl's status in, in village is not necessarily the best status. She's always so so open-minded. Uh, she look at every little kid on their own merit. She look at me, look at other little girl or, or whatever um, on our own merit. You can feel that, right? Kids, kids are very, very smart. You can feel you can feel whether someone is genuinely nice and loving to you. Um, I, I can share two, two really good things um, about her. Uh, she taught me to always look at people's hearts. Don't look at their face. Don't look at their face. Don't listen to what they say. But look at their heart. Close your eyes. Look at their heart.
1: That's beautiful.
2: That's beautiful, but you have to remember she could not see. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy. That's incredible. That's right.
2: <laughs> but she read people like no one no one else could. Uh, she really used she use she can really see people's hearts. So so is it, it, is Is that kinda...
1: something you think about in your business dealings? I mean you're the CEO of Yum China. Do you sometimes do that? Do you oh, pause? For, oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah, to oh, I, I, tell me more I, about that. Yeah, I, I like to
2: look at people's eyes, and I also like to not look at people and really just reflect upon, you know, what is this person really
1: is like. And you do that just by looking at the eyes, or do you just sort of rely on that very intuitive feeling that you get? Both. So, so this is the beautiful
2: thing for, for her to say, isn't it? It stayed with me forever.
1: Grandma's know best.
2: Oh, she's, she's clever. And then, and then what are the other right things she always does? Um, we, I mean, life back to the village time were, were, were not easy, but we, we were slightly, uh, our family is slightly better off than, than many other family in the village. So there, there there, were always many old ladies who come to her and talk to her and, and because she could not see, she could not really walk very well either. So she just sit there and listen. And she she listened, she gave guidance to people. And sometimes she always find her little change or little food at some corner to give away. She, so always, somehow, she always somehow managed to find something with her eyes closed to give it to someone. Um,
1: That's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. You know, I read that you said this in an interview to the Sunday Times, that your tuition for grade one was five renminbi. And that was China back in the 70s. And you said, but your parents could not afford tuition for you and your sister.
2: Well, I mean, I I don't know whether it's tuition fee or whatever, but at that time, it's just like you have to you know, pay a small fee to go to the school. And, um, yeah, it, and and you have to remember at that time, uh, a, a good teacher salary, a good good uh, government official salary was 36 yuan a month. So five five yuan is a lot of money. It was a lot of money? So my sister went and I, I could not. Um, but it's okay. Um, so by the time I started school, it was primary school. So I skipped all the whatever preschool stuff. What, what I ended up doing is I I was I stood behind my sister, and she she came home with her homework and, and book, and, and I would learn standing behind her.
1: Joey, that's incredible. So you didn't have any formal education till the age of, what, seven? I don't know, seven maybe? and you yeah. just learned from your sister because she was the one who got to go to school yeah yeah and then you went to school in hong kong and then you went in, to in china in china china in china, hong, in china. Yeah. and then you went to and then we moved to hong kong
2: i moved to hong kong when i was 9 years old um, and then i went to uh, hong kong university uh, and then and then and then northwestern
1: after northwestern i became i became a consultant at mckinsey Back to Fujian province you know I wanted to ask you this is again something I read and you said growing up in the countryside in China you only get to eat chicken in postpartum care Of course yes. of course things have changed rapidly yeah. in China since then how has your personal journey mirrored the rise of China Wow your question is very very profound <laughs> I don't
2: even know how to answer the question I think I'm I'm the fortunate one. I'm very fortunate, and the, and the blessing came from the fact that um, I had the opportunity to, to be educated. Um, you know, and I belong to the generation who have witnessed the 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 historical change of China in in a in a very positive way
1: and in a very massive way.
2: Absolutely massive, um, so, so I'm very, very lucky one, and I just hope that my, the, the generation after me will continue to be as lucky as me. But the key turning point really is the education. Um, so, so when I went to Hong Kong, I was nine years old, um, and I started school there. I, I started to have the opportunity to learn English. That's when I started to learn ABC. Even though life was not easy at that time, because at the same time of starting school in Hong Kong, I actually started to work in factories in Hong Kong.
1: Which kind of factory? What factory did you work in?
2: Oh, all sorts of stuff, like the plastic flour, the clothing company, uh, the clothing factory, the, the belt of the watch. So I, I work and uh, and all the way to 15. So by the time I turned 15, I started to work in... In restaurants, uh, because you restaurants, said you were a
1: waitress, yes.
2: Yeah, restaurants. The pay was a lot better, even back to the old time compared to factories, and 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 I was I was I was finally reaching the legal age of working, so might <laughs> might as well took advantage of that. Right. So of course, it was not so easy to balance work and going to school, uh, but going to school was just a game-changing event in my life. And and no matter how hard it is, I think uh, in China, I hope in India, and in Africa, around the world, we, we got to provide the educational uh, opportunity for girls. Uh, there's no other better way. That just has to be the best way. Not every girl will come through, but some of us have, and some of us
1: well, I agree. It is the absolute, the most critical ingredient for young girls in places like India, China, Africa. It is the most important skill. Yes. So you were a young girl, 12, 13, 14, and you were going to school in Hong Kong and working at a factory at the same time. How has that shaped you? Hardworking. <laughs> <laughs> to um, say the least, yes. working And,
2: it you know, and, uh, in hindsight, right now, I mean, I I, I knew very little about music. I, I knew very little about pop culture at my age.
1: You didn't have time for any of that.
2: Uh, correct, correct. My time was in factory. Uh, my time was about, you know, making some money to put food on the table. Um, but I learned something else, you know. I moved from job to job um from factory to factory cuz you know a lot of these work were temporary so you have to keep looking for a job um, but you know the the factory is a different environment is a different learning environment too isn't it um so so i'm that, that those those days make me very comfortable to learn new things learning new things is just daily job it's part of life um, and then get the best out of whatever you can get is is life. Um, it's not something abnormal. And also trying to be as efficient as possible um, is a is is part of life too. Um, because you know, between school and, and work, of course, it's very difficult to find a time to do homework, but I still have to do my homework. So you do it, then then I have to find a way to do it quickly. <laughs> and uh um, <Yeah. laughs> hardworking and being efficient, and, and having the ability to learn, learn new things, uh, these are all the good, good training. You know, if I look back, arguably, well, we pay a lot of money for our kids to learn this and that these days, and at that time, I learned this and that and still get paid too. Um, so it's just, just different type of learning.
1: And I spoke to some people before interviewing you today, just in terms of my research, and a lot of people said she really cares about her employees. And a part of me listening to your story is wondering, is this why? Do you see a little bit of yourself, that young girl working in the factory, working as a waitress in every one of your KFC employees, for example?
2: You are just a very smart lady, aren't you?
1: (laughs) I I mean, of course, that that shaped
2: me. Um, I, I actually even talk about it when I when I joined this company. Uh, somehow, you know, no matter who I am right now, who I will be in the future, um, I always have that little girl work in the restaurant in me, always. So so when I make the decision, it was difficult decision that. Uh, we're going to keep some of our store open uh, because, because the group that was underrepresented was the group of employees who really need the money. But I was one of them at some point, so I understand.
1: Joey, looking back at the last four months, what has been your biggest learning as a business leader? I have been writing a little bit, but I, I,
2: I, don't think I'm ready to get to the point to, to, to get to the conclusion bit yet.
1: We're not there yet, are we? Exactly. You are absolutely
2: right. We are not there yet. Um, but if I have to pick one learning, um, it's still, it's still about doing the right thing, even though it's difficult. Um, for us, the most difficult decision at that time is was to, whether to to keep some of our stores open or not. Uh, because you can imagine, um, it's very difficult to make that decision. It does involve some calculated risk. Um, but when we look at, look at our employees, our staff, our community uh, in the long term, we felt that we need to make a holistic decision uh, to keep some of our store, as long, as long as we can see they are safe, my staff are safe, we can continue to trade through. We we provide the support to our community, uh, and we provide the jobs to our staff. And we also uh, hopefully at the end, it seems like we have you know gone through the most difficult time. At the end, we can we 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 will come out as a stronger and better company, and still can provide jobs to our 450,000 employees. And I'm very uh, proud. I am proud to say that we are not firing anyone. We are not letting go of anyone in our company
1: this year. That's an amazing note to end on, Joey. Thank you very much. That was Joey Watt, the CEO of Yum China, in a very honest conversation about her personal story. I hope you enjoyed it. I find Joey incredibly inspiring and her down-to-earth nature is humbling. I'll be back next week with another episode of Out of Office. Remember, we are on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, and on Spotify. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. Stay well and thank you for listening.